Spoiler alert. Hello everyone, happy holidays and welcome to Living a Life Through Books, the podcast about everything bookish. I'm your host, Dr. Shanaz Ahmed, and today is Book Club. We are doing Louise Brown's The Dancing Girls of Lahore. It was a lively conversation, but before I bring up our discussion, I wanted to say that this was our last book of 2021, and we have completed two full years for this book club. It's an exciting milestone. As always, I will add links in the bio for Libro FM and Buy Me a Coffee. Libro FM is an audiobook subscription that I have always spoken highly about. I believe in their mission to help independent bookstores in your own community. Anyway, now after a year, I'm officially an affiliate for them. So please use my link if you want to purchase a subscription. And if you want to support this podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash LLTB podcast. And uh, I thank you. All the links are in the bio. So let's just get to book club. All right, everyone. Welcome to book club. It seems like it's been a while since we've gotten together. I don't know why, but welcome. Excited. We're doing a very, um, I would say, intriguing book today. It's um, The Dancing Girls of Lahore by Louise Brown. I think it's Louise, right? It's not Louis. It's L-O-U-I-S. No, L-O-U-I-S-E. Yeah, so I'm going to go with Louise Brown. And it's basically the, it's basically nonfiction. It's also, it's Louise Brown is a researcher and she goes into Pakistan, into the areas where women sell themselves. So basically red light districts and things like that. And she talks about that and other elements of strata in society in Pakistan. So um, yeah, first off, I want to say, I didn't know this was nonfiction. I think about 25 pages in, I think I contacted Aaron. I contacted you and I said, this is nonfiction. And the only reason I got tripped up that it's nonfiction is because um, our main character, she, her first time, I guess, losing her virginity was to Sheikh Zayed, right? Or was that when she lost her virginity? Anyway, so, and when it's at Sheikh Zayed, I'm like, I know this dude. <laughs> Not personally at all, but, you know, I grew up in Dubai for high school. And all televisions, I mean, Sheikh Zayed is the ruler of Abu Dhabi. And, you know, I grew up in that time in the 80s where you're constantly seeing Sheikh Zayed's picture with the United Arab Emirates flag behind it. And here I am reading this book and she's like, oh, I was with Sheikh Zayed. And I'm kind of like, oh, this is not fiction. And oh shit, Sheikh Zayed. <laughs> like, and then I'm going, oh wait, you're a prostitute though. I'm like, wait, this is, you know, it's like my mind was just like, I don't even know in which direction my mind was going at that point. And then once I realized, okay, nonfiction, okay, it's the story, her story with kids, all of that. Yeah, it was very uh, interesting. First thoughts, anyone? 
I had a long first thought. So <laughs> you go. Anybody first thoughts? Yeah, I'll go. Um, I really enjoyed this book. I enjoyed hearing the history um, because it's not a culture that I grew up in. And so, um, and also not a culture or a history that gets included in most of the textbooks here in this country, unfortunately. So for me, it was just, it was very interesting to hear about, I don't think I even realized that people had left from India and been like kept out. Like that isn't even a history that I was familiar with. So just that was just so intriguing to me to get that information and that background and also to better understand like just the cultural aspects of the dancing girls. And it does remind me a lot about what I have read about like the geisha type society, you know? So it was, it it was new information for me. And I always like to hear new information and get different perspectives. And I love how it was kind of written as a memoir almost, you know, that's kind of how I would call it because it was such a story line and not just like facts or whatever thrown at you. So first thoughts, anyone? I thought this book was very interesting. Uh, I feel like I went through a cycle of lots of emotions while I was reading this book. I was, I was angry. I was sad. I was amazed at the resilience of these people. And then I was angry and sad again. And so it was kind of a bit of a roller coaster um, with, with the emotions, but um, I, I really liked the idea that the author created these friendships uh, that lasted over time. And I can, I could read, it could feel that it was difficult for her sometimes to remain impartial um, when she was trying to record the, the story. Um, but I think that kind of added to it too. So is it okay if I go? Sure. Yeah. So um, I just wanted to say that uh, when you read the book, Shanaz, that's for you. <laughs> what, 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 what? This is for you. What is so for when, me? Yes. Yeah, so when you start the book, it says right here, it's a true story. <laughs> I probably just skipped. I didn't probably I think, skip that part. Thing. Right. Let me go yeah. back. Hold That's on. Okay. Let me, you it's know the what? the very first page where they have the copyrights and printed. So it says the, uh, all the names have been changed to protect their privacy. The only real names used in the book are Sheikh Syed, uh, the former whatever, and Iqbal Hussain. Okay, let me just show you real quick. Maybe you, I was going to say that it's, right. I started off, I read it here. Okay. And I'm going to show you, look at right. that. Right. That's what I was going to say that you write. So how did you read it? How was it? What was it? It was not on Kindle, right? It was on Hoopla. It, yes, I, I got on Hoopla. Okay. I didn't all read right. it on a book. And what you I are know. reading right now about all these characters are real, ex- uh, not real, they are real, but the names have been changed except right. for Sheikh Zayed. Right. That's at the and end of the book. Okay, got so it. I got, got it. to the end. Okay. And what you're reading right now right. is there. So okay. when you just brought it up, I'm going, did I miss yeah. something that critical? I mean, no, no, no. which I tend to do, which I as know. you all know, I tend to. No, no, no. I was joking. Like that. You so I was like, miss- I did it again. Oh, my goodness. I was like, but glad I didn't. It was my Hoopla thing. Okay. So I took my liberty to joke with you. Don't take it personal, okay? No, no, so no here's of course the thing. not. Please do. <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, yeah, so first thoughts. Uh, so I didn't reread it. I read it like two times, but a long time ago. And then a couple of years ago again. And I just thought that 
Uh, so my adult life uh, is spent in Lahore and that's the city they talked about. So the connection of that, especially with the history was really fascinating. I knew some of it, but the way she did was amazing. And I just overall loved the whole, I want to say the backdrop and the story and the characters and everything, you know, however she, and I know it's not a story. It's like, you know, it's nonfiction, but it's really like uh, you guys said that it makes you cry. It makes you laugh. It makes you cringe. It's, it's all of the emotions that she encompasses in the book. And I love it. The one thing I will say is that I'm glad, I mean, I have a cursory grasp of Hindi, Urdu or whatever. So when there's words like Namkeen, Gandhi, you know, it's just common words. I did not have trouble with most of them. Maybe there was one or two words I was like, oh, what is this? You know, how did I miss this word? But majority of the words I did not have trouble with. But the few words that I did have trouble with, I started recognizing that, oh my gosh, for someone who's not a native speaker who's reading this book, I don't know how you felt, Erin, but I felt there were too many words that were repeated in the language. Like the word Gandhi, okay? Gandhi means dirty. And, you know, you're reading this and you're like, oh, these Gandhi girls, oh, you are Gandhi, she's Gandhi, she's, you know, and I, I'm automatically like, to me, it means Gandhi, it means dirty. I get the context, I get all of it. But then I started thinking, oh my gosh, Aaron's reading this, Dr. Jen's reading this. It is not instinctive for them to read the word Gandhi and know the entire context of it. And I'm just curious, before we start discussing everything, is how many times did you guys have to go and look in the glossary because there were so many words. I was, I felt bad for you and Jen because I was like so many words, so many times. How did you guys handle that? I mean, I personally could gather the context of what they were saying, like the the connotations of what they were saying. So I did not look up every single word. I did occasionally look up a word if I could not gather like context or connotation from it, then I would look it up and try to figure out like, what does this mean? But I think the, the way, the places where she chose to use the words were usually, it was very obvious, either context, connotation or both. Okay. Yeah, I agree with that. And although I'm not like, I, of course I could relate to the words and everything, but like, for example, she would put like tabla and harmonium, which kind of makes sense that both are musical instruments. So it kind of, I think she facilitated the reader to some mm-hmm. extent. And I also think that she did not put everything that was super important in the language. She kind of went with the flow where she inserted the words, which were not going to really change the meaning of the whole thing and uh, kind of even the context of the thing. So I think uh, that way she, but you're right. If I were reading with the book club, then I would definitely be thinking about Aaron and Dr. Jane and others. But I, like I said, I read it a long time ago just for myself. So Right. And, and you're a native speaker. So right. Yeah. But even then, I mean, uh, with native, like reading Malala or somebody like I always wonder, like audience, you know, but I think I read this book in a very different way. So maybe. OK, I'm, I just want to start off with this one question, which 
was at the back of my mind throughout this book because I just couldn't get over it. Like I just couldn't let it go is the concept of dirt and dirty girls and implying them having sex with someone they're not married to automatically makes them dirty. So there's all of that. And then the concept I couldn't let go of is what about dirty boys? If there are dirty girls, where are the dirty boys? Why is there nothing about dirty boys? Are boys not considered Gandhi? Ganda, it would be Ganda because that's the male version of the word. But anyway, are boys not considered that? Why do boys in general go home free for the most part? And that was something that struck me. I don't know why, but it struck me very heavily in this book. It just was, it just kept getting hammered into me the society of, okay, I understand these girls are trying to survive. I, I know it was about the women and the girls, but I just kept thinking about the men. And I was like, how have we as a society allowed this? And it's, you know, we, we just, I mean, it's okay. I mean, Sheikh Zayed has how many women? And it's all about that. And then the other question that came up to, which I have a question for, which guys can help me understand, because I was like, I've always understood virginity was prized in our culture, in our culture as in, in the Desi culture, Indian Pakistani culture. I'm sure it's prized maybe even in American culture because guys feel like it's a notch in their belt. I was the first one to deflower her. You know, again, deflower. It's almost like just because a woman, you know, had sex, she's deflowered. I, I just, all these concepts, it's just, this book made me think of all of that. And I was like, why is virginity prized so much? Because we have no way of saying a guy's a virgin or whatever. And it's like, what? I mean, if I was a young girl, I'm going to be like, um, are you a virgin boy? Because, you know, if you're a virgin boy, well, well, I'm only looking for a virgin boy. Like, come on. We, I mean, it's just all of this was at the back of my mind. Yes, I know the story was there, but it was just this book was a mind just mind messing kind of a book. But anyway, those are my thoughts. Anyone want to care to well, help me I'm, out? I mean, I felt like it was just as patriarchal, maybe slightly more so, but in general, pretty equally patriarchal as what we have here. It's just, you know, I mean, we don't have districts, but it's, still goes on every day here but I thought what was strange to me is that there's like an actual like legal process involved here like there's a marriage contract for some of for you know many of these women right like they talked about how like they would call him or their husband and there's like I don't know some kind of like informal contract right but it's something basically that can be signed and said oh no 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 he's my husband you know that's that's bizarre. And maybe their marriage is just one day, right? Like that's bizarre to me like, that you would go through that. And there is some kind of a contractual agreement, but it's not long standing. Like here, if you were to get married, 
is definitely not going to be like gotten rid of in a day. <laughs> and, and if you're Britney I'm, Spears, maybe, but anyway, okay, may- maybe, but, um, and there's going to be long-term potential, like financial ramifications, that kind of stuff, like responsibilities. So not, I mean, and obviously I think in, and not in all, like in the cases of boy children, it seemed like the fathers maybe did kind of take responsibility to a certain extent, but then it was like, you can't have any contact with the mother. You can't, you know, but definitely they were not taking responsibility for their girl children. It, it was just, that was the most shocking part of this for me from a Western perspective, but the prostitution and and the fact that people, you know, have relationships outside of marriage and people have relationships out of mar- outside of, you know, their uh, public relationship um, that may or may not be consistent with their sexual orientation for their public relationship, like all of that stuff. That was not shocking to me. That was not surprising to me. That was all things I think you see here. But what was shocking was the fact that there's like this like semi-legal agreement and like everybody's okay with this. That's, that was just weird for me. I have to say, I don't, I don't mean to digress, but it's going to sound like a digression, but I'll bring it back. I was dating, you know, after my divorce, I was quote unquote dating, going out with men. And I'll never forget this. I was um, up at the restaurant, like at uh, Olive, Erin and that seafood restaurant. So we're at the parking lot. And this guy is like, "Um, do you know what a muta is? Now, at that point, I did not know what a muta was. Okay. A muta. I've never heard that term before. What is that? And he says, well, it's a temporary marriage. I said, no, no. And and that's where my, I just went, no, 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 no. I think I just kept saying no as a mantra and he's trying to explain it to me. He's like, but you know, it is, it is a contract because that way I can legally look at you in the eyes and we can actually, I'm thinking, no, no. And he's going, well, even in the time of the prophet, you know, because that, how else am I supposed to get to know someone legally without being in sin? And I'm going, no, no, no. Well, you know, it's, I'm hearing this, this thing about this temporary marriage that this guy is quote unquote proposing to me. And that's my first exposure to Mutta. And apparently it's more in, not more, I would say it is in Shiaism versus Sunni. And when I read this book, a lot of these, you know, it was a lot of the Shia society, right? And then I was like, oh, they're all Shias. Oh, they're all Shias, and that's why they're doing all this Mutta thing. And now it's like, oh yeah, Mutta, yeah, temporary marriage. Oh yeah, well, let's sign a contract for what one week, you know, two days, whatever. And you know, but yeah, I was offered a Mutta. I, I declined. I think I never talked to him again. But but that when I was reading this book, it connected and um I love how it's like, oh, yeah, we got to keep it legal because otherwise you're in sin. Just I'm still digesting. I know, Aaron, this happens. This happens here. This happens in Pakistan. This happens in Indonesia. This happens all over the freaking world. I get it, but I don't get it. Does that make sense? I just it's just a lot to digest that it's so easy to just 
push it just under the rug. Oh, yeah, it's totally fine. We are making what is inappropriate, what's unacceptable into legal, acceptable, respectable, respectable, okay, for these women. And who's making this? Like you said, patriarchal society, making our laws and saying, I am going to make you respectable by giving you a contract. So now when I sleep with you tonight and tomorrow I say goodbye, you are a respectable woman. I I don't know if it was entirely about respect. I think it might have been about staying out of jail. If they're not breaking laws, then hopefully they can retain their their freedom. Because it is a sin. I think it's the whole, the punishment and the sin of having intimate relationships outside of wedlock. So I think about the the marriage contract or something. I mean, things like that not only happen there. I think there's so many different kinds of things that happen in many societies. So it's just that we read about it. And I personally think it was also because that contract, and I, again, haven't read the book recently, but I think it was the rich people could do it so that they could kind of keep that woman to themselves or that certain woman to himself and not have to kind of, you know, so she's mine, even if you're not married. So I think that was one way of kind of owning the woman. I think that's what it was about uh, so that she doesn't sleep around with somebody else or nobody else can come and buy her or whatever. But wasn't he also kind of paying uh, her like some monthly monthly expenses, right? So I think that's that was the thing. So which, you know, it kind of works for them. Ever so often, ever so often. Right. She right. had to throughout the book, this was a theme of constantly like, oh, he was here, but he didn't yes. give me money. He didn't give right. me money. Oh, he gave me $2. I mean, what is $2 going to get me? Mm-hmm. Oh, He's, you know, it's this constant theme. But you're right. You're right. He was. He so, was you know, so I, that was exactly one way of owning the woman. And, you know, OK, that's my girl or that's my whatever. That was, I think, how I looked at it. Of course, not a good thing, but that's the logic behind it to me. That was that's what it seemed like. Um, the other thing that you said, Shanaz, I mean, you're a dentist. I'm a speech pathologist. Um, you know, Aaron, you are in uh, gen- generic. And I think Dr. Jenna. So we all have our different professions. Honestly, prostitution is the oldest profession. <laughs> people didn't use to fix teeth or teach people how to talk or go into jeans or whatever we, else we are doing, but they did prostitution forever. So we can't say that we are making that disrespectful thing into respectful or respectful thing into disrespect. It's something that has always happened. It's human nature, not justifying it. But when you look deeper into it, it's not it's not something created by um, and I don't think you were meaning to say that, but it's not something created by men only. There are many there are women who actually run those things in all the cultures. And if you have read memoirs of Geisha, you know that, you know, how it was women who were running and same with this uh, red light area or diamond market. Or I think in Japan, they called it flower market or something, or whether it's New Orleans. And there is also some women who do it by choice as well. Not born into it, but they by, by choice. And like Aaron said, like, you know, over here, people are 
self-made. There are women self-made prostitutes, not because of the pressure of the you know culture or anything. So it's it's just like a profession. And of course, I mean, especially for those who are born into it or forced into it, that's a very different thing. You know, that's a very touchy kind of a subject. But again, it's nothing new. You know, again, it's something that's been going on forever. And the second thing you mentioned was deflowering. I think it's not only Pakistan, India. It was very much celebrated in uh, members of Geisha as well. And I think I read a book uh, from the Roosevelt district, is it the New Orleans, right? Is it, what was it called? What district do they call? I don't know. I, I, the quarters, I think. Okay, so the Louisiana Lu- Lu- uh, also has a... Like French Quarter? Or- the French, French Quarter, there you French go. French Quarters you. is, yeah. yeah, okay. Right, so even then, years ago, it was like virginity of a woman has always been prized. I think it's it has always been pri- prized historically than now. So... Right. I mean, the first time and all that, it's much celebrated or whatever. Uh, So I think it's actually less priced now in Western culture than it is in the rest of the world or historically. So I I think that um, that is uh, and they have, of course, people, rich people like Sheikh Zed and all. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, it's sad and it's. God, it's dirty, right? It's ugly. But um, unfortunately, it is what it is. It's so sad. Uh, There you go. You just said it's sad. You have money and you can buy a 16. Yeah, exactly. You just said it's sad. It's dirty. It's ugly. Yeah. And we're referring to a man, not a woman. Not a woman. Not a woman. A man. But there are also uh, people who are rich. And would love to buy young boys as well. So I think it's also you mean it's like just women? about them having you mean like women, like rich women buying young boys. No, rich men buying boys, younger boys. Okay. I'm sure Even there's it- rich women that buy young boys too, though. <laughs> <Be clear. laughs> okay. I, see, that's that's a question I have. Is and why how not? many yeah. how many <laughs> women? Oh yeah, I want to know how many women, okay, mm-hmm. go out buying men. Versus how many men go out buying women? I would say there are more men out there buying women than women going out there buying men. And that's, there's a huge, huge divide in that. And that's what I'm talking about is that why is there such a huge divide? And, you know, it's, I like the way the book ended. I liked it and I didn't like it. It was something that she said about how was it Maha? Yeah, that she, despite everything that had happened to her in her life, she still held hope and she still had the hope for love. And I was thinking in terms of women and our constitutions and our need for love and acceptance. I think it's not so much about what happened in her life. I think it's, it's inborn in us to want that. And that's why women, I feel granted. No, I I hear you reflect that some women just do it because they want to do that. But majority of them are pushed into these societies, but they're pushed in it 
But deep down, what women want is not the sex. They just want a relationship. They want a connection. Men want sex. Women want connection is what I think. Majority. I'm not saying, you know, I don't want to. Very true. No, you're right. Very true. There's only a very small percentage of women who do it by choice or they end up making an establishment to run something like this. So I agree with you. Um, I just recently read a book. I don't remember the title. I have to go back where it's it was in America and uh, again, nonfiction. This woman, she said she what she did was she got a website and uploaded her pictures on it and she started getting clients and she just did it like, oh, OK, we've got the Internet. I'm going to do this. She automatically, you know, payments, all of that. She got clients. And this is something she's like, oh, it pays well. I want to do this. She actually did that. And in the book, she talks about how she said, you know, all you women, you're like, oh, my husband's cheating on me. How dare he and all that. And she's like, they're really coming to me for something that their wives won't do for some particular act that their wives won't do or something just a little bit that they're not getting from their wife, but deep down they all love their wives and they want to go back to their wives. What are your thoughts on that? I know it's a totally different book. I don't even have the title of it, but it's the same concept of essentially dancing girls of Lahore. You have all these rich guys from Pakistan. They're married, they have families and yet they find themselves here. I mean, I think, that, and I don't guess it's probably just Western culture, but it's definitely emphasized in most traditional Western culture that one person is supposed to like meet all of your needs, whether those are like sexual needs, emotional needs, like, you know, just social needs, logistical needs of like having a household and a family, you know? And I think that that's a little bit unrealistic, you know, like, I I just don't think that like, Like there are aspects of my life, like, for example, that book club fills that I, I mean, my husband doesn't read books that often. Uh, He rarely completes a book club. But you're not sleeping with us, Erin. You're not having sex with us. But that's not what it's about. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. I'm just saying maybe those people people are getting, like they have a, their marriage has some other aspect that is being met that is important to them, but maybe the sexual aspect is not what's being met in that relationship. I'm just, I think that it's un, I think that it's unrealistic. I'm not saying that, that people shouldn't have an expectation for monogamy if that's what they want in their life. Uh, But I do think that it's unrealistic to expect one partner to meet all of your needs in all of those physical, emotional, social ways. I, I do think that that's an unrealistic expectation that's put on couples or people that's such a good point I really agree with that and I I mean and that's why we keep on saying that marriage is a compromise no matter what you know you because you on your side is also not giving everything that that other person may hey I'm perfect but just want to let you know but go ahead (laughs) you're all perfect My, my husband, when he listens to this podcast, he's going to go, yeah, right. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> I know. So I think it's, I, you know what? I think it's not only just the sexual need that they come, just a break from everything else could also be it. It's not necessarily, they may have very good sex life, but just, okay, no work, no wife, no children, no family, no obligations, just let's go and sit there even if 
they might still be having a meaningless sex with the prostitute. But uh, I think they, the sense of being away from any kind of ties is, is the main, I, I think, the main reason behind it. But other than that, I think there's also, and I think I mentioned that before as well, and the book also talks about it, the the courtesans, which were different from the, like that you'd sleep with or something. So they actually were good companions. And it's not only here, it's like in, I think in the Spanish, Mexican culture, as well as Chinese and like Far Eastern culture as well, where you have the companions who are very educated, well-versed in all the subjects where you sit with other people and you can sit with friends and they sit with you, they drink with you, they eat with you, and they know how to talk. So just sitting with an intelligent woman. So it's not only about, and I'm not referring to Maha. I'm just referring to like generally when we say that, why do men go out? So that's one sort of like an aspect as well where people like the companionship good or bad i'm not justifying it i'm just saying but i really uh, appreciate erin you bringing that thing up it's i i really never thought of that that it is actually unreal for one person to be able to fulfill everything and same goes for our spouses as well but um yeah i guess that's why we say that you know we just it's a compromise and irrespective of you know whether it's a love marriage. I'm, I have an arranged marriage. I, I'm going to be completing 24 years in a couple of, in a week, actually. So, you know. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. So, you know. Right. No, I'm just, you know, there's this thing of with the patriarchal societies, you know, like even in Islam, right? A man yeah. can have four wives, technically, whatever. I'd like to know how many husbands a woman can have. So there's a... If, a, there's if one a man reason. cannot satisfy a woman in all aspects because it's an unfair expectation of a woman to satisfy a man in all aspects. It's also an unfair expectation for a man to satisfy a woman in all yes. aspects. Then how many men am I allowed to have? No, no, you're right. But here's one thing. About, <laughs> so, let me just go. And I'm not super religious and I'm not trying to, but when four marriages were allowed in Islam, the reason was there was there were wars going on. There were, there were a lot were of widows. Men. Yes, there they were, were more widows who needed women didn't used to work at that time. So it wasn't like, OK, I am married to this woman for like she's what 40 now. So let me get an 18 year old virgin. That was not the concept. People misuse that concept. You are yes, supposed yes. to even marry like a, a woman older than you if she's widow and she has kids or she needs economic assistance. First thing. Uh, second thing, if a woman has two husbands, who knows who's the father? I mean, there's a very logical reason behind that too. Genetics. But it's genetics. not I know genetics. natives have. Genetics can find who the father is. Okay, but go ahead. Right, Erin? Can, can genetics you, find but... the father? I'm just asking you, Erin. If... If I had sex with 10 men on the same day and I had a baby, can you, as a genetic counselor, find out who the father is? Tell me, Erin. Well, yes. Yes, you can. But yeah, I'm just, I mean. I'm, that's, that, you know, because that was that was the biggest thing. Who is the you know, it's like, who is the father? But, you know, with all these women, we know exactly who the mother is. Well, now we also know who the father is. You're right. So, you know, I, I'm I just mean, saying. You're, no, you're making a right. I mean, why do we think that men has to have 
you know, more than one person to set aside. I totally get that. Um, and we are conditioned that way. We are trained that way. And we just think that's good. And that's how it is. And but I, I understand what you're saying. But um, I think there are a lot of I believe. But I think there are some cultures in the U.S. as well who have who have. Right. Is it? I don't know. But there, there are. I mean, there like is Mormons, some- right. Mormons can have several wives, right? That's true, yes. But there is also a religious group where women can have more than one husband. And I cannot think of me for, you know, the life of me, what that was. But there is. Well, I'm intrigued by them. I like this group. (laughs) <laughs> yes. let me get you set I, up no. right? <laughs> okay. I am just being obnoxious but, obviously I'm just being obnoxious but when Griffith explains this from a historical pe- perspective of why that you know men were allowed to have more than one wife that actually is the first time I've heard that and I think mm-hmm. yeah no like that makes sense to me why historically that that right. would have been a thing and like important and you even see that like in christianity because well to a certain extent because they do say like that you're supposed to take care of the widows and like if your brother's wife if she's widowed if you are not married you can take her for your wife if if not like if you are married then you're supposed to support her so it's almost essentially like you don't i guess you know have they don't talk about the knowing each other in the biblical sense, as people say, <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, they do talk about caring for her and the children as though that they were your own. So that's like, I feel like that's a common thing then, right. Among different religions, different religions. And, you know, yeah. if you just take care of the widow and her child, your children, you can do that financially as well, but you see marrying also takes care of the woman's sexual needs. So if you look at it, it's not just because for the man's pleasure, he can on support financially as well, but it's also you are provide like you are giving her the basic needs that she may have. She's alone; she doesn't have a man in her life. So by marrying her, you also provide her with that. So, I mean, that that was I think also uh, looking into it that way that you know men and women they both have those needs. So just because you're a widow doesn't mean that you should not be able to. So that's I think. And, and Rufus is absolutely right on the historic perspective of why there were the four wives and, you know, with with the wartime and all of that. Allowed. I mean, it's not that, you know. It's not encouraged. It's, it's not, not encouraged. It's not in encouraged. Pakistan. Right. And also, and also, you know, a friend of mine had told me like, oh, you know what? But the cons- the constraint on that for marriages is you've got to treat every single one of them equal, like exactly equal. And that's impossible to provide emotional equality or whatever. And you can never be totally equal. And that was her explanation on on marriage that, oh, well, no man can really do that. So they can't be equal. It's kind of like the Merchant of Venice clause, apparently like, you know, a pound of flesh, but not a drop of blood. It's kind of that clause, you know, you can have four wives, but they have to be exact equal. I don't know. It can't be. I have three kids and I love each of them very differently. So I I don't know if you can treat uh, multiple spouses the same way. So everybody brings whatever. Um, so, but I was going to say that in Pakistan, you have to have the consent of the first wife if you want to, if the uh, first wife does not. And I think Aisha, you can probably, you live there. You can probably no. elaborate on that more. 
so uh, talking first of all i would like to share my thought on this book uh, it's like a book that i would not read alone i would only read it with a book because it's a very different read for me the point that i really love that the author separates between culture and religion she doesn't mix culture perspective and religious perspective and he explain it again and again that this is islam and this is pakistani culture so it was a good read and i like it and talking about the marriages as i have read different perspective and different islamic scholars have different thoughts on that this uh, and i have also heard that men are allowed to have four wives if if he is able to maintain justice between them or uh, or if he can properly manage or he can make them happy so i i am not super religious and i would also agree with the refer but uh, i think islam is is very what can we say uh, is not about is a neutral religion and different people have uh, differently interpret interpreted so uh, this is all about different interpretation different uh, jurisprudence different uh, islamic laws but if we uh, thoroughly read quran and hadith we would take out different things different people take out different uh, different meanings from it so yeah yeah and people are going to take advantage of anything that's given to them they're going to really push the parameters and everybody uses religion to their own convenience and all that even laws we all do right so uh but my point was like in pakistan and i don't know about saudi arabia but you can the thing is again the the second marriage was in and i know we're again digressing from the book but in pakistan you have to have the consent the permission from first wife if you want to marry uh the second time irrespective of the situation but anyway she has go ahead these wives it. in the book right did they know that their husbands were going and seeing these women i i sounded a, to me like some did and maybe some did not so i think they did yeah okay so here's my thing you know if you're a woman in pakistan you're married to a rich guy and your husband is going to this red light district and it's with this woman what are your thoughts on that i mean this happens to like people of our status i mean like richer women and then their husbands are doing this i mean so it's not only in pakistan i think it's uh, right right but i'm just or, i'm just saying right? you know what i'm saying no like, no i understand this is not just pakistan we're not putting pakistan under the bus we're and i'm not defending entire- i'm just you know i'm not trying to but what i'm saying is like a just general question you know we have like the other day my youngest son came and he was like my uh, friend was really sad because uh her dad went to a topless bar and her mom found out so i mean you know it's it's very sad i mean it goes without saying that it's very sad but um i don't know you can look but you can't touch i, I mean i'm just I'm <laughs> Janaz, you're so- okay. Okay, I am being obnoxious, but I will tell you. I like it. I'm sorry. I'm. I'm okay. I am giving both perspectives. Okay. If my husband went to a topless bar, I would be pissed. Okay. Go with him then. Well, yeah, I don't want to look it. at topless bar, and I don't want to look at naked men either. So no. like, I don't want either of it. Okay, but I'm just saying the the issue is this. Okay, okay. 
You know, okay, in all seriousness, if my husband went to a topless bar, I would feel, okay, I would feel A, like he was cheating on me. Although he wasn't really sleeping with these women, I feel like he cheated on me. But I think deep down, that feeling comes from and stems from what Aaron had said. I cannot be everything to him. And I might be introspective and think, I can't be the person that satisfies him in these elements. And it's going to be very blunt on my face if that happened. And I would be hurt that somewhere I was lacking. And then I would carry this hurt forward in my marriage. And here's the thing. I could be like, okay, I'm sorry. After I get over my hurt, I'm sorry. I can't be in this marriage anymore. I want a divorce. But again, you know, the complications of a divorce and then you marry someone else and then you go through the same thing. This is the issues here are of in the book. Okay. There is cultural issues. Okay. There is serious cultural issues of how these women are treated as bottom of society. They're just like, filth of the earth, whatever, for doing what they do. But that's women. But men are never really, most majority of men are never treated that way, even though they may be selling their services. You know, if you take men and women, that's one of the things that I want to say about that. It's the cultural strata. And then the other thing is, I think it's about um, actual sexual desire. You know, I feel like the society world is catering more patriarchal to men and their desires more so than women and their desires. That's where I think this book kind of made me feel like, okay, granted, all societies are like this. And the other thought that came to me about dancing girls and, you know, like, like the movie Pakisa, you know, it's this beautiful, elegant dance with all the gungrus, you know, the bells along, bells on their hands and their legs, and they're doing this dances. And then their dresses, Aaron, they do the twirls, okay? So when they twirl, their dress just flattens out, okay? It's this A skirt, and it just flattens, this beautiful skirt. And they've got this, um, what they're wearing under is this churidar, and they're dancing, and they're twirling, and it's just, if you've ever seen it, it's really, it's actually quite beautiful. And it's quite an art form. But what we've done is we've taken an art, a sport. And as Rifford said, you know, these were courtesans, and they were talking to men. And you know, they were, they had something more treated more with more respect and all of that. And then you have kind of been like, okay, since you're a dancing girl, Wink, wink, let's see you in the bedroom also. Wink, wink, let's go. And um, that's where, you know, even culturally, you know, I, I don't know why my brain went into ballet. And I think about the expectation. We go to a show and we watch a ballet, but there is no expectation of anyone there that one of these girls is going to go with the dance director or whatever and go home and sleep with them. We we view it for what it is. We view it for art and it's wow. And it's beautiful. And that's where it is. You know, we, we go and watch sports. We watch a tennis match. We watch a baseball match and we view it for, Oh wow, this talent, but that's where that ends. But when it comes to a woman and when it comes to a courtesan and when it comes to dancing like this, 
immediately there is more involved in it. And these women know it. And because they're born into it, they kind of accept it and they kind of want it because that's what they know. Just like Nina, you know, was like, she knew she was attractive. She knew she danced well. She she knew this was okay. I, this is what's going to happen. And this is what I want, Louise. This is what she becomes. She wants because that's all she has seen. That's all she's experienced. She knows nothing else. Those are my thoughts. I probably have digressed from, I don't know what to what, but you know, and it just, this book made me angry about the patriarchy and made me angry about keeping women the way they are and nothing's really changing as much. One more thing, Erin, I read, a, I read, I saw a TED talk. I don't remember exactly what the topic. This woman was trying to rescue these other women. Okay. And I don't know rescue from what, but these women were rescued and, um, that was her job. Like she rescued these women, rehabbed them and tried to get them, I guess, situated in life and reality, all that stuff. Well, at the same time, her friends, I mean, the researcher, the person who's actually rehabbing these women and rescuing them, she has a friends who are also of her culture, you know, higher culture, whatever. Uh, and um, they're like looking for, they're like, they'll come to her and say, hey, do you know of a maid? I'm looking for a maid to clean my home or to cook and stuff like that. And in the same sentence, they'll say, but not one of our girls. And in the TED talk, she mentions that. She says, you know, these women come to me and they're like, I'm looking for this. And this is our profession. We're trying to rehab these girls and trying to get them even a job as a maid. But it's like, oh, yeah, I'm looking for a maid, but not one of our girls. And that's even with women. And it's just society in general. And I'll be honest, I do not want one of these girls in my house, not as a maid, not as anything. I just don't want them. Okay, call me judgmental. Call me what you want. I do not want them in my house, period. Just period. So there you have it. And it's it's very unfair and it's sad. And I can't believe I'm saying this and it's recorded on the podcast, all of this. But that's the reason I don't want it. I just don't. If I, who'm trying to be open-minded, I'm really angry about society, I'm angry about this, but, oh no, I don't want them in my house. Where is the hope? Where is the hope for these women? Where is the hope for our world, our society? And forget the patriarchy. I mean, that, you know, that's where I'm at. But Erin, go ahead. I, I talk a lot. Just shut me up whenever you need to shut me up. But anyway, go ahead. Well, I think one of... I can't remember what the youngest daughter was named because um, it's been a while since I finished the book. Uh, Ariba? Ariba? Ariba. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. I thought it was interesting to kind of counter the perspective between her and her older sister. Like her older sister knew she was beautiful. She knew she could dance. She knew she could do she could make good money from doing this. And this was all that she knew. Because, you know, she really hadn't been given other education or training, right? So she didn't have other opportunity. But Ariba, she had a situation where people disliked her. People, just because of how she looked, right? And I think there was a bit of colorism that was at play there. And and she was being raped. And so, like, at some point, she decides, well, screw this rape thing. I'm just going to sell because, again, if I'm going to have, if I'm going to be forced into these situations anyway... I might as well be making money off of it, you know? And I thought that that was an interesting counter because it's almost like, I don't know. It was almost like her sticking the middle finger 
to, you know, and to a certain extent, it was like, well, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to, I'm going to, you know, take this and I'm going to profit off of it and I'm going to love myself anyway and I'm going to do what's right for me. And I just thought that was so interesting. And I mean, honestly, I don't know what other choices she really would have had in life because she was treated terribly by her family and she was treated terribly by her community. And, and so she was just making the best of a bad situation for herself, which was also, I think, the story for many of the people in this book that we met. But for me, like, I would have, I, I get, I get where you're coming from. Like, it's hard to have trust when you see cultural things that are different from what you, you believe and what you put in your life. And so it'd be really hard to bring somebody into your life that had lived culturally where this was acceptable. I get that. But I think that's where the, the challenge is, right? Like, like we have to be the hope for these people and um, we have to find a way to bring them into community in a non-judgmental fashion and, and take care of them. And, you know, that's, we have to figure out how does that look? What do they need? What are their needs? And me, and sometimes I think people come in and they're like, well, the need is that we've got to stop the prostitution and we've got to, you know, change this from the bottom up, but that's not like, that's not always actually what these people need, you know? And, and we have to be okay that like, we are not their like saviors in this situation. Like that, what we think is right is not necessarily what's right for them. And we have to allow them to uh, tell us what they need and how we can help. Yeah. I'm, uh, Aaron, I, I really like that you brought, what was the name of the girl? I read the book. Ariba. Ariba, right? I was going to say, we should, I, that was one of the saddest moments for me, that and the, the transgender society, the hierarchy and all that. So those two are really touchy parts for me. So, um, and I think that makes prostitutes a lot more than any other thing. But Shanaz, I know you, you got emotional, but honestly, it's just like being born poor, being born in the red light. Area. I mean, it's, you're right about not bringing them to your home and you wouldn't do that. And Erin, when you say that, it's it's a huge, so I don't know whose side I'm going to take, but I know that when it's used you to- You can take Erin's side, it's totally fine. No, no, I'm I, actually going to take your side <laughs> in that, on that one. And the reason I'm doing it, no, no, Shanaz, I actually am going to, because, you know, when it was confined to red light district, it was, and that's how I heard my mom and other people you know, women from those generations say that it was better. Men could go and be done and then come back and have a life. But when they started integrating in the rest of the society, when they closed the district or whatever happened, they started living as neighbors, which was not very good for the community and the culture. So I'm just giving you a perspective of, you know, people who thought at that time that, you know, because when I remember when we were, most of these are from the film industry as well. Shunaz, you know that, right? Even in India. Even in India. Yeah. So right. the it thing was, is, I'll tell you, like, you know, I'm, I act right uh, in stage here. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. I do. I do. I mean, I, I have actually acted on stage. I've been on stage, stage productions, things okay. like that. Well, My family, they've been, you know, my dad, my aunt is like, what? what is she doing? Right. She's, she's acting like acting. somewhere mm-hmm. they're trying to piece together 
is it possible for her to be on stage and do this? Or did she sleep with someone right. to get on stage? And why does she need to sleep with someone? Why? Right. why? She's a dentist. Why does she need to why sleep with someone to be, to be on stage? But the concept right. that I just want to do that. I didn't sleep with anyone. This is just no. art is just blows their mind. It's still, it annoys my dad that I'm so involved in theater, but it's, but that's, that's where, because Bollywood, all the women, like not, well, at least I don't know about now. I don't know the current actresses, but all the top famous actresses, like the actresses, at least from last generation, right? last they were gener- all like, from there. I'm sure Reka, I don't even know how oh, many. Oh yeah, of course. I don't know how many men she slept with. Reka is a very famous mm. actress. But to get a role into Bollywood cinema, you have to do perform a lot of favors. And that's how you make it on screen. You don't make it on screen by being patient and by waiting tables and all of that. No, you make it on screen by actually performing with men. So that's that's where the acting is. I do not know if that is the current status of acting, but, but if that was the case today, it will not surprise me. Like if, if suddenly there was this, wow, this actress, I don't know, maybe I'm just making the story up right now. Let's say a very famous actress, young actress. And then it comes up, she slept with this older guy like Shah Rukh Khan or she slept with Amitabh and that's how she got this role. If that came up, if that got unearthed, I'm just making that up. But if that happened, it will not surprise me because that is that's the way it was. So Mm -hmm. and why would it not be that way now? So it is to some extent, uh, but I think it's people are getting more broad minded. But all these actresses are probably daughters or some rich people. somewhere right (laughs) because of that like a lot of the actresses who are daughters of you know elite people they don't they probably don't have to do all this like say Aishwarya Rai she was Miss India and you know so maybe maybe you know and she came from she hailed from a rich family so maybe she didn't have to sell herself to -hmm. get where she is and yes she is quite um attractive so I mean very 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 attractive obviously but Again, you know, back to the book and these women. And I just rough with what you said about how I don't want these women in my house. I don't know if I want them as my neighbor either. Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't I, I don't know how I would feel. I mean, I may feel like, OK, fine. They're my neighbor. They're in that house. Probably just drive by real fast and shut my garage. I don't know. I don't know how I would feel about just walking down my home. And if if she waved at me, if Maha waved at me, I don't know what I would do. I just, I don't know. I, I don't know. Jen, I mean, Dr. Healy. I'm just curious if you've ever asked any neighbors if they're sex workers, because you don't even know. Maybe there are some. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Just a thought. I mean, like, I don't, I don't know that you can tell when someone walks down the street what their chosen profession is. You, you know what? You make a very, very valid point because this book that I told you I read about this uh, woman who, you know, she created this website and then she was selling her services 
she could be my neighbor. You're right. How do I know? I do not know. It's kind of like the same thing about um, the sex predators. You know, there is a directory of it, you know, Maybe there's a predator somewhere. You're right. You are. You're yeah, absolutely that's right. A, we're ta- that's a criminal thing. But you know, uh, I'm going to say that one thing that you know, when I was growing up. So I lived in Pakistan till I was 23, just turned 24 and came to the US. So of course, you know, it was in, it was something we'd always know. So we could recognize. And I'm again not trying to be, but you could tell a rich man and a younger woman and all that. I again, I don't want to be judgmental or I mean I've changed a lot from that culture to here but uh, you could tell so to answer your question it's uh, it's kind of obvious and I would give the example of you could tell um, a pole dancer in a I mean unless like or you could tell what a Vegas girl or something from an I mean I'm just saying but of course they're assimilating more and more back home as well um And the reason is not that you hate them because they do what they do. The reason is, I think uh, you wouldn't want your sons or your brothers or your husband living and then somebody like that. That's, I think, what the whole point was that the generation like my mom and they used to make that, you know, well, men are going to do what they're going to do, but at least let's not do it here. Let's because we have young girls, we don't want our girls to be inspired or to be inspired by those. I think that was more like a cultural thing. And I personally don't believe in it. But I know that's what you know. And I think in the book, it also mentions that there's a very clear line between wife and and everywhere in the world, right? And your daughter versus another 18 year old girl who's selling for uh, her body for sex or whatever. So I think that was the main uh, thing. And it's also acceptance of the fact that yes, men are going to do what they're going to do. Right. 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 I I just want to say the society, it's a society, you know, not just, not just talking prostitution, you know, in society, men perceive women the way they perceive women. For example, when I got divorced, I was used goods, period. Obviously I wasn't still a virgin, so every guy was like, what do you what do you got to hide? You've already done it. So why don't we get together and, you know, I'll, you know, I'll take you to a hotel room, babe. You know, that was every guy's pickup line. Like, seriously, that's what every guy, they see guy, you know, wanted from me because what he looked at when he saw me, I mean, me, I'm talking me, Shanaz, as a pediatric dentist. An educated woman, what he saw was a woman who was not a virgin. What he saw was, oh, yeah, she's not a virgin. She has nothing to protect, essentially. So she doesn't need to, I guess, respect her body or want have choices with that. You know, a body is just whatever. That was what every, I guess, that culture. And that's what men essentially wanted, you know, and this is from an educated point of view. So I can't even think about, you know, what these men are going to want from, you know, like, oh, wow, prostitutes is all of that. You know, this it's a it's something pervasive in society about what's going on is what I feel. Rufat? So I just want to say that when we say men, I do want to emphasize that, in my opinion, and I don't know about uh, West, I, of course, I know I've lived here as long as I've lived in Pakistan, but I do think that in cultures like Pakistan or India or even China, women make the culture. We tell our sons 
that you have to marry a virgin and a a woman who's not virgin is not worth you. Right. So that's the point which I always have with my, a lot of my other friends and men are like, no men, when a boy is born and he's told things like these, you are the master of the home. You have, you can't cook and you, so who's telling my dad never told me that if your husband yells at you, just stay quiet. You know who told me? My mom, my sister, my mother-in-law. Well, you know, if he's angry, just be quiet. My brother and my dad never, ever told me that. So who who makes the culture? And I know we're not talking about men versus women, but you, uh, since you said, and we are also talking about the book as men being just going after women or creating this kind of like a perception where a girl who's not a virgin should be handled differently, treated differently. It's because it's instilled by by moms and Rafat, I will uh correction I mean I know you said you know your dad never told you that your mom is the one who told you and right. I completely agree with you on that also okay. that it is the women who are like propagating role and gender differentiation oh my gosh you, you should see you, you should see my culture you know and you know and families and all oh my gosh he's he's picking up he's picking up the dishes no 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 please please put the dishes down we will take care of you no and you'll see all these women and aunties running behind like new grooms or if a girl's marrying a new groom picks up a you know plate or something they'll no 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 please please here we'll take care of it is there anything else we can get you it's the women you're right propagate this culture but i will tell you when i was married in india my father-in-law respected me a great deal okay he used to smoke he used to smoke downstairs and right from day one i said i am not going to come down i'm not going to sit with you when you're smoking i this is something i won't do this is my health my lungs i'm going to stay up so he said okay i respect that okay which is like huge for a desi father-in-law to say that he said he respects that anyway fast forward i don't know a few months my dad comes and visits and they're smoking or what at that time my dad smoked that thing is smoking i happen to come down the stairs to come sit with them i saw the smoke and i went up the stairs immediately my father-in-law saw me he knew why i went up the stairs and he's like oh my gosh i'm so sorry give me 5 minutes 10 minutes please and he was putting out his cigarette my dad my own father said what kind of daughter have i raised here my father was offended and embarrassed by his daughter because his daughter had the audacity to walk away from her father-in-law because he was smoking and his daughter was the cause for the man to put out a cigarette how dare you you know like this was my father he was a, he was offended by it he was upset by it so to say only the women yes but i, I mean maybe my dad's a little whatever but i would say at least in indian culture even the men are involved in this my uncle has told me when my cousin got married has literally come up to me and told me to not corrupt his new daughter-in-law okay a man told me you as a woman do not corrupt my new daughter-in-law because they want to keep her pristine and to be able to say yes whatever you say to his son because he didn't want his daughter-in-law to have a lip like i do apparently i have a lip do i have a lip 
I mean, me? No, I do not. I mean, I'm very like calm. And anyway, I will it's okay. say I've been accused of the same and by my uncle. So it's okay. <laughs> um, I have a couple more things to say about uh, what we expect from our own family members and what parents say. This happened in my family where a I'm trying to I don't know who listens to this podcast. So I don't want to mention names or anything. So someone was going to get married. Okay. And his sister was, you know, was divorcee or whatever. And I was like, oh, you can get him married to, you know, even if it's a divorcee, you know, a good woman. Right. And she goes, no, but what did he do to do to marry a divorcee? It's not his fault. He should marry a virgin. And this is coming from a divorcee. And I'm trying to think if I ha- if my brother, you know, I'm divorced. And if my brother was going to marry someone and it was a divorcee was the choice, would I say, oh, yeah, OK, yeah, no, no, you can marry a divorcee. Or would I say, no, we want a virgin for my brother. I'm not going to answer that. Most likely I would have said, no, we want a virgin for my brother. And I would be propagating it, which is just ridiculous. It's just that's one thing. The other thing is I went to a writer's retreat up two, three months ago and Alka Joshi, the author of The Henna Artist, okay, she did the keynote, the closing keynote speech. And in that we were all the women were there. We were like it was all women's only. We were like, wow, you should hear the women going, oh, wow. Because what she said was she said, when I turned 18, my mom took me to the doctor and got me my birth control pills. And all she said was, do not marry the first guy you sleep with and make good choices. She said, my mom never stopped me from saying, you know, oh, you know, oh, you're going to have sex. You know, she just took me when I was ready. She took me to the doctor, got me my pills and just, you know, told me to go and, you know, don't marry the first person you sleep with. And that's it. An experienced life to the fullest. And I am, I remember sitting there listening to Alka talk about this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, wow. Would I say that to my own daughter? Probably not. But also the other women there were like, Wow, that was one woman. That was that was crazy. Erin, would you take Nora when she turns 18 to a doctor and get her checked out and say, okay, get her her, you know, birth control pills. Nora, here you go. Experience Probably not life. waiting until she's 18, to be frank. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm not that. But, I was just naive. Naive. Say that. But, but would you just be like, <laughs> okay, go for it? But no, I'm saying, would you be yeah. like, go I mean, sleep I plan with to. anyone you want? Yeah, I plan to have an, I mean, I plan to have an open uh, door to conversation about that. Uh, So funny story about me. And I know Dr. Healy knows this because I did it when I worked with her. (laughs) But I was one day at Walgreens. Um, I don't even remember. I was getting like hair products or I don't know, cough syrup. I don't know. Something that I needed for the house. And there's a young couple in front of me that are obviously teenagers, like quite obviously teenagers. And they had a, um, a box of condoms and they, um, got up to the, to the register and, um, the debit card that they had was declined and they were about to walk away. You paid and I was, I did. I 100% did because I was like, you know what? Like they're going to go and do what they're going to do. 
And I'm, I mean, like, I'm not a, a naive person. I understand that. And I would much rather them do it in a safe way and in a way that, you know, is protecting them from becoming parents because I'm not sure that they were like ready for that. Obviously, I mean, they, they were trying to take caution themselves, right? Um, so yeah, I paid for it and I was like, have a good day. Have a good time. <laughs> and the cat, it was so funny. It was a young cat. I mean, the cashier was probably, she was probably five to 10 years younger than me. And she was like, do you do that often? And I was like, well, this is the first time that it's presented itself, but I do it again. <laughs> and that was that. And I don't feel bad about it. I feel really good about it. I hope they feel good about it. I, you know, Erin, you know, I hear you. I respect where you're coming from. And I admire that and more courage to you. And I have to say, when you said they were going to do what they were going to do anyway, I I love that. They were going to do what they were going to do anyway. I would rather, you know, they were already trying to do the right thing. They were trying and you were just trying to help it. But this is where I'm beginning to realize I'm going to be 50 next year. Okay. The big five old next year. And I have to say that we all come with our stories, right? And I am old and you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I'm still trying to be more open-minded. Trying is the operative word, but I'm still tied in to my culture, to my old principles and that's where I come up with the statements of, I don't want these women in my house. But Erin would be like, come on, let's rehab you. Come on in. Nora, meet meet her. Come say hi. Dr. Jen is, Dr. Jen is shaking her head. Yes. She's like, yes. And Dr. Jen is like, let me, you know, reach my hand out, open arms. Come on in. Let me give you a hug. Come on in. Sit down. Take a seat. Here's the bathroom. Here's the kitchen. Help yourself. That's both of you. And that's just not me because- as much as I'm trying to expand my brain, which is good, I'm trying at least, but I'm not, I don't have an expanded brain. I'm still backwards. I'm still very backwards in a lot of ways. At least the first step is to admit that you are that. And so I will say that, that yes, I am that, that I have my, I have my pitfalls. I'm trying, but that's what I will say. Wait, bravo to you, Erin. Because that's why the al Joshi story, when she said that, you know, the concept, my mom, <laughs> yeah, right. My mom and talking like that, hell no. Oh, hell no. I mean, this is like, you know, bubble wrap her vagina till she gets married. I mean, like, I don't hear that. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I And I've said it before on, on your podcast and I'll say it again. I, I mean, I know I was raised in a different religion than, than you, but it's still the same. Virginity is prized. And there was literally no moment in my life where I owned my own sexuality until I, you know, became a divorced woman to be quite frank. And when that happened, then it was like, you know what I'm going to do for me. I'm going to make choices for me as much as I can, but I'm going to own my own sexuality because I am tired of, you know, so in, in our culture, in our religion, in the church, you know, you, you did this virginity pact where you, you know, they, what do they call it? Um, it's basically like, I'm going to not lose my virginity until I'm married. And you make this like right, promise. Like we talked about it with that book, that one book. Yeah. And you make the promise to your dad or to your, to your parents, which is like, they don't own my sexuality. Like, <laughs> why should I, why should we be making this 
covenant? Why was that encouraged? And at the time I didn't realize like why my parents were maybe felt a little weird about that. But, um, but I do now, like, I think that's weird. I don't want my daughter to do that. Like I want her to make the right choices for her. And I don't think that Alka's mom was off. Like you, I don't think you should feel pressure to marry the first person that you sleep with. That's what I did. And that's why my first was part of probably why my first marriage was so terrible. You know, I mean, it's not the only reason there's lots of reasons why it was terrible, but I personally felt pressure to stay in that marriage and in that relationship that to become a marriage, because that's who I lost my virginity to. And even if it, it wasn't even always like, um, pressure from my parents, but pressure from my community pressure from the people because in my community it was like it's a small town so it was like the same people I go to church with are the same people that I'm going to school with and I'm working with that you know I'm living with day to day and so that pressure it's almost like if you don't follow through with that expectation you are going to be outcast so I understand a little bit about that aspect of the book because that's really what it felt like and and I think that's very detrimental and I don't want to put that on my daughter so for me like that's I think in an ideal world, maybe, you know, you are fulfilled in other ways and you find like, you know, I don't know. I I think we like to paint a picture in our religious texts of what ideal worlds are like, but reality is not like that. And so I think it's okay to not marry the person that you (laughs) first sleep with. I think it's okay to not, you know, to not wait for marriage. There's lots of logistical reasons why that didn't even work back in the day. So I can't imagine that that's exactly how life, you know, even in these religious texts actually went all the time. So yeah, no, I I plan to basically tell, like, put a box of condoms in the bathroom and just be like, here's this, if you need it, if you want to start some birth control, you come talk to me, I'll get you to the doctor. I just want that to be an open conversation. I don't want it to be a secret thing. That's when people get in trouble. Like that's when they feel like they have to make choices that are not true to themselves. And that's more detrimental to me. I don't really care about the rest. I really don't. I also put lotion on my daughter's feet every night because, uh, and I continue to do this, even though she's seven, sometimes multiple times a night when she asks me to, she like, doesn't like the feeling of dry feet, but I continue to do this because I, (laughs) one day, whenever she has a partner, um, I'll know that they deserve her if they're putting lotion on her feet every time she asks. And I want her to have that expectation for herself. Brad will put lotion on my feet whenever I ask. I don't ask him, but I mean, I could just be like, Brad, lotion, and he would do it. But um, I think I think for me, it's not just the culture. I think there's that whole thing of religion. Remember in the book, right? There's You, you mentioned, Erin, that these women got these contracts just to keep it legal, just to keep it religiously legal too, to make it not a sin. (laughs) And that's the kind, in religion, it's all about sin versus, good versus evil, right? You're either a sinner or a saint. There's no- I would call that a legality though. But that's like somebody's interpretation of the religious text. But that's the way, right, right. right, But religious text, Islamic religious text, I mean, my understanding is, you do not have sexual relations outside of a marriage period. That's it. That, I mean, that's, that's what, it. It's what our text says too. But again, like, and if you do, and if you do, you're going to hell. 
and oh. hellfire is filled with women right and also and also i mean there was a recent case <laughs> in um was it malaysia and indonesia that they actually literally whipped these i think teenagers they caught them and they whipped them 100 lashes because that was the punishment for what they call fornication fornication yeah that was the punishment and they had an ambulance waiting there while they were whipping these this couple a hundred times with the crowd forming and watching the spectacle. And do you think that that couple, either of them in their in their marriage, like in a legal marriage, are going to be able to have sex without trauma? Because I don't. I think that's ridiculous to think that they're going to have sex in a relationship after that and it be able to be like a happy experience for them. They're going to have trauma from that. That's not helpful. I don't think I, I guess I don't think personally that that's what God wants either. (laughs) I think he wants us to have joy. I think, you know, he wants us to be happy. So I'm not really, I don't know. In my religious beliefs, I don't think even if it is sinful, I don't think that that, that punishment is the purpose or the goal that God would want. But that's my, that's just my, and, and to be clear, I don't even think that necessarily all Christians would agree with what I just said. So let me be clear. Like, that's my own personal interpretation. No, I, I hear you, Erin. I'm just saying, I'm just saying there are religious edicts that are placed that end up traumatizing women when they do have their first sexual encounter, you know, whether it's being lashed or not, you know, just the fact that, okay, here you go. You're married. Boom. Do it. Well, in your book, you talk about it. Right. I, I mean, that's exactly it, what happens to Rifa. Not you, Rifa. She has no idea how she to. Has, she's, it's like, boom, like all of a sudden here she's married and that happens. Right. It's traumatic. And she didn't know the logistics. You can't even, I think when you, when you make sex such a taboo thing where it can only be talked about it can't even be talked about outside of correct uh, of a marriage right that makes and that's true for many religions around the world but that makes it so that i mean one if there is somebody being abused they can't even talk about it correct because Because it's within the marriage we do not want to discuss what happens in the marriage outside of the marriage and even if they're not married and and they're being abused they can't talk about it because it's sin Right. And that and it's damning to them. And so this just does not like that mentality propagates what we call rape culture. Right. Like that's what it does. And so if we can't even have open communication about sex, then we are part of of rape culture. Rufat, you have your hand up. Oh, I just wanted to say that I don't think it's religious when we say we can't talk about sex. It's more cultural. I don't think anywhere it says in Islam or in Christianity, oh, don't talk to talk about sex. I think it's the culture that makes us think that way. Uh, it's India, Pakistan, China, America, wherever, you know. I I don't think, like you said, Aaron, God wants us to have joy. And um, I just told you I, I had an arranged marriage. If I am born again, I would do the same. It was a wonderful experience uh, getting married. I had full liberty from my parents. Uh, We are four brothers and sisters and all three of them had a love marriage and I was given a choice, but I was like, you know, I 
at that time, I didn't like anybody. So, you know, I just thought that it was just perfect. And I would do the same thing over again. I would still have the same thoughts. And I like this, that I have those thoughts, but I'm open to other things. So I believe in you, Saren, you know, that you should talk to your daughter like that. And don't wait till she's 18, of course. <laughs> but we are born, we change so much. And by changing doesn't mean that things that, and then everything has a different value for you, for me and for everybody in the group, right? So, uh, but changing doesn't mean that I dislike everything that is uh, conservative in that, if you, you know what I'm saying, right? Just because it's looked upon that way that, okay, it was my arranged marriage and, you know, it was the first time or whatever, but, you know, it's an experience which turned out good for me, but it doesn't mean that it's something that has to turn out good for somebody else. And rape doesn't only happen in arranged marriages or in Pakistan or in America, or, I mean, I'm talking about the rape within the marriage. So that's a common thing. So again, every human is so different. Everybody is good, but how they fit together is totally different. You know, you don't get divorced because the other person was bad. It's just that, though, you know, in most cases, it's because you didn't fit for you. And of course, they're bad people. They're bad women. They're bad men. Of course, besides that, you know, it's just that you were not a good fit. The person could be happier with somebody else. You could have been happy with somebody else. So it's like a lot of those things, the, the dynamics of how one, you know, maybe if I had a different experience, I would probably would have hated my marriage or the way I was married off. You know what I'm saying? But somehow it turned out to be okay. So I'm okay. And second thing I wanted to say, especially, and I know we're talking about the book, so I would talk about the culture back home and Aisha and probably, um, and you, um, Shinaz can relate to it. And so uh, Pakistan and India, we have so many genres of cultures. There are so many subcultures. Like if I were to sit here um, with a girl from New York to like Louisiana or to North or South, or pretty much the general parameters of the culture would be same. You know, it's okay to wear sleeveless. It's okay to wear bathing suit in the uh, on the beach or in the pool. It's okay to talk to men. It's generally right. So when you go back home and not even go back home, if I have a dinner at my place and we have 10 girls or even five girls from different parts of Pakistan, even the same city, we all have a different culture in our home. Sleeveless is acceptable. The, the ones who wear hijab, they don't, you know, so it's, there's so many genres in our culture. I just told you about my mom being okay with having a district rather than him having come over and kind of immerse in this is in the, you know, the respectful society or however you want to put it. I mean, that's a culture, right? My mom is totally accepting of the fact that yes, it's there. Men should go there, but they should not come here. You don't want them in your home, you know? So there's so many different uh, thinking patterns that we have. I'm perfectly okay with an arranged marriage. I'm never going to impose it on my kids because I know, you know, the dynamics of what they would, the way we are raising them is not. And I, you know, it's not because I hated my life and I'm giving them that option, not at all. I would do the same again. I am saying it for the third time. <laughs> but um, I think the way we evolve, the way we grow, and it's not only we who are growing, it's also the culture. 24 years ago, when I came from Pakistan, things were so different. I just went back again and I spent 10 days there. I came a couple of weeks ago. It's totally different. 
You know, there's so much access to things. There's so many women out in the field working, they're dating, they're, you know, have their own profession and degrees and everything. So, I mean, and when we come here, even people who moved generation before me reacted differently. Even people now who are moving here react differently. So I think it's, um, again, to me, it's very dynamic. It's very floating kind of a, a concept. You know what I'm saying? So I, I don't have a daughter, so I can't say what would I do or what my husband and I would think, but I don't know. You know, we don't even like talk too much about marriage within like to my daughter, like she knows we're married, but like I, whenever I say anything about marriage and I'm like, when you're 40 and <laughs> like way down the road and you've gotten like a college degree and a master's degree or whatever, you know, you finished whatever training and learning you want to do. And I, I think I always try to like be very clear about that. And if she's watching a Barbie show and it's all about, you know, a relationship being the goal or whatever, I'm always like, yeah, but think about it, Barbie, you could like go to school and you could have a job and you could own your own business. And I like, I don't know. I try to offset that stuff. Not because I think there's anything wrong with marriage because I don't, but I think that there's so many messages to girls in our society here today that that's like where they should find their value and their worth that that's, um, and when a marriage fails, then oftentimes women really do. I mean, not that it doesn't affect men too, but I'm saying like self-worth and value that those are things that are big hits, um, in divorces for women. I was just going to say, I really, I agree with Aaron and I haven't talked too much about my background here, but, um, I am never married. Don't plan on getting married. Um, I have no tie to marriage. I am not, a religious person either. So maybe that's where it, it came from that I, I don't feel that there's something missing from my life because I have never and don't plan on, on getting married. And I have a dog, just the two of us and my boyfriend comes over sometimes and sometimes doesn't. And we're all totally happy with this arrangement, but everybody is different. And so I think the important thing is just acceptance for of everybody and all the relationship styles and nobody needs to feel less than because, you know, they're someone else's religion is telling them that they should be doing something and they don't feel that that represents their life. So that's the, the kind of things that I, I pass on to, to my kiddo. Dr. Jen research says that uh, people who are not married live longer. Women, women who are not married live longer. So there you go. Uh, it also says women without children live longer. So I'm married, so I don't live longer, but I don't have children. So I live longer. So it balances out, you know, anyway, um, we've been yakking. This book has really gotten a lot of um, heated conversation. I mean, we, we haven't stayed with the book, but we have stayed with the book because it's a global concept. It's a global construct. So I think we should um, wrap things up. Final thoughts about the book and your rating. We're not going to do the cover. It doesn't matter. It's nonfiction. I don't care. So uh, your final thoughts and your rating of the book. I'll start. Okay. My final thought is the book is provocative. It makes me think. I rated it at three because I felt it was repetitious. After a while, I just got tired of the characters and the stories and the whining and, oh, we're going to do this. And I figured, I mean, ultimately, it's the story of a vicious cycle that continues. But I just, 
as much as I loved it, I still gave it three because I wouldn't read it again, but I was glad for the knowledge of the book. I can go next. Um, I think I gave like I gave it either a three or four. So let's just go with 3.5 right now. And for kind of the same <clears throat> reasons, I do think it drug out a little bit, but I also appreciate that she was trying to tell the story in, you know, kind of real time of what she was going through being immersed in this um, culture. So I understand the reasons for that. Uh, I do like the structure, how she interspersed historical facts and, um, you know, uh, just information facts about the culture while she was talking about her personal experience and the character well the people they're not really characters because they're real people right but um the people that she came into contact with and what those relationships and interactions were like so I felt like it it read like a memoir or like a story and I really liked that and I also really um valued the information and the perspective that I got from the book I would be very selective about who I recommend you know reading the book because I feel like you know you know how people are. <laughs> um, so I'm probably not going to recommend it to like somebody that's trying to get back into reading, but I would definitely recommend it to somebody who's trying to get a more global perspective in their reading. And uh, I don't know if I, I would re- use it as a reference in the future. Like I may go back and like look for something particular. I don't know if I'd read the whole thing front to back again. I also gave it a, a 3.5 and I, I didn't enjoy the book. I, I, like I said at the beginning, there was a lot of emotional turmoil, which is a good thing because the reader, the, the author was able to inspire that and, and um, tell the story in a way that it drew out the, the emotions. It was definitely a roller coaster though. Um, but I, and, and it was in, in a good way, I, I kind of wanted to know what happened to them. By the end, I wanted to know what happened to them afterwards because I was kind of bonded too. And so I, I wanted to know what happened with um, the younger girls and, you know, what happened to her son because it sounded like he was going to have an interesting story. Um, and do they ever get themselves out of poverty? Um, so I, I kind of wanted to know what happened um, beyond that. So, and I, I agree with Erin. I, I don't know how many people I would recommend this book to, <laughs> but there's probably a few um, that, that would come up periodically. But yeah, overall, I liked it. I think uh, I like it. I like this book and I would rate it three based on that this is uh, uh, written for academic purpose and it has so much knowledge and information about that part of the Lahore so I would rate it three I like it and it was okay read for me I um I have read it twice already <laughs> but I um I do agree that there were some parts where it was a drag I mean I was like come on move on and all that but I kind of would go towards four because it gave so much information about so many things that either I knew or didn't know or they confirmed I, I also liked the fact that uh, she not only talks about the women and, and that time she goes back and talks about the Mogalera and how the whole thing came. And she also includes things like uh, the transgenders in that, which um, I think such a neglected part of our cultures back home. And I just want to mention one thing that, um, and I think she mentions it in the book as well, that the transgenders were actually very trusted people in Mogalera. They were trusted with their women because, uh, you know, they were the only pe- connection, not only, but they were one of the connections between the male and the female parts of the palaces or something. And they could take messages and stuff. And they were well respected at that time. And it, it was sad to see how 
their demise in the current culture of Pakistan and India, the the direction that they went to. And it seems like they're kind of um, getting, there are some right movements back home for transgenders, which is such a good thing to know. But I really like that she touched that part, the hierarchy and the politics among them. And I know we didn't have time to talk about that, but that was one thing I wanted to talk about. So that was, uh, I, I like that whole thing. I also want to let you know that Iqbal, the painter, uh, is a real guy. He went to the National College of Arts, which is NCA. And then he now has a really nice restaurant called Cuckoo, because I think that's his nickname or whatever. But it's in the same district because the district is not like run by the like it's not the district anymore. But uh, yes, I agree with the dragging. So I would between 3.5 and 4, but 4 only because I loved the whole thing about it. But in terms of uh, writing, yes, it was 3.5. Okay. Any final words or we're going to call it quits for book club? <laughs> All right. Well, so funny. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, Rufus always stressed out when I'm like, let's call it quits for like book she's club. She's closing the book club. <laughs> Rufus like calling book. I have to come up with a different way of see, yeah. saying it we are closing our conversation right. about discussion <laughs> we're closing our discussion about right. the dancing girls of lahore right. and thank you everyone for joining me wasn't that an interesting conversation i was editing this episode and i thought wow that's a good discussion you never know where a conversation is going to go. Okay, so next year, we are starting our third year of book club with one of my personal favorites, A Man Called Uvo by Frederick Backman. Look out for that episode mid-January. I'm hoping to work on some end-of-year episodes like my top 10 books of the year. We shall see. Stay tuned. Also, would you guys do me a huge favor, please, share this podcast with one person who you think would enjoy this content. Of course, if you want to share it with the world and all your social media platforms, please do. But for now, all I'm asking is for one person. And uh, what else? Yes, the opening and closing music for this and all my previous episodes was composed by my husband, Brad Slavik. I'm Dr. Shanaz Ahmed with Living a Life Through Books, signing off. Remember to water the seeds within you. It's time. <laughs>